You're listening to audio from New King Church. If you'd like to get our weekly sermons, hit subscribe. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit newkingchurch.com. Amen, amen. Well, please remain standing. Um, I want to read from God's Word to begin with here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. It's good to see you this morning. We are, um, we are beginning a new series. If you weren't here last week, Michael kicked off our um, brand new series through the book of Matthew. We're calling this series Kingdom Come. Um, the first part of this series is the king's arrival. We're going to be looking at all that uh, the Bible has to teach us about Jesus coming in, coming to the earth. And, um, and today we're going to be looking at uh, these, these kind of two big concepts. It feels almost like two sermons here, but um, we're going to be, the, the title of this sermon is Dogmatic Doctrines and the, and the Power of Right Perspective. And so first, the first half of this, we're going to be looking at this idea of dogmatic doctrines and seeing why it's important that we are dogmatic about what we believe. Dogmatic meaning immovable and certain about what we believe. Um, so that's where we're headed and uh, let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, um, your word is far more precious than we realize. We have Bibles, many of us, um, Bibles upon Bibles at our homes. And um, we can get a new one whenever we want, order a new one on Amazon or go to the bookstore and get one. And there are people in other places in the world that don't have access to your holy scriptures. And God, um, help us to appreciate your word the way that we should, to honor it, re- revere it, to believe it with all our hearts. God, would you speak through me today? Would you encourage your church? Would you challenge us in the ways we need to be challenged, Lord? And uh, be free to move in this place. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first 
thing I want to look at. Look at this. I got double, I got double tables. I like a DJ. Um, <laughs> first thing I want to look at here is the importance of dogmatic doctrine. What do I mean by that? Because the word dogmatic has a lot of negative connotations in, in our society today. Um, it's not very popular to be dogmatic about anything because what is popular, what's considered sort of the highest of virtues is to never offend. Um, and, and so if you're dogmatic, you might have a tendency to offend someone. Um, basically, what our culture tells us is never challenge what another person believes, which is a problem for Christianity because Christianity claims to be the, the only true religion. Jesus claims to be the only way to God, and that is very exclusive and not very tolerant in the way that our society thinks about tolerance. Um, and so I want, to, I want to encourage you this morning that it's not just okay to be dogmatic about what you believe. It's right you should be certain and immovable about what the Scriptures teach. Back in the 1800s, a uh, minister by the name of J.C. Ryle was recognizing in his day, he was a, a pastor in England, he was recognizing that, that there was very little um, clear, distinct beliefs among the people of God. And he said this, he said, dislike of dogma is an epidemic which is just now doing great harm. It produces a jellyfish Christianity, a Christianity without bone or muscle or power. The leading principle is no dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive doctrine. They have no definite opinions they are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have myriads of jellyfish worshipers who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They cannot discern things that differ. They are tossed to and fro like children by every wind of doctrine, ever ready for new things because they have no firm grip on the old. I read that quote and I thought, that is true of our day as well. We are too easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every human philosophy and idea. And we're afraid of being seen as intolerant. And so we don't come to any clear and distinct and firm doctrines about so many things. But the Bible is very clear. And the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as absolute truth that is outside of us, that we don't determine on our own, that God Himself determines. It's objective truth. It's absolute. It can be discovered. It can be known. We can know the truth about Jesus. We can know that He is the only way to God, that there is a real hell we can know what God really believes about sexuality and gender. 
We can trust the infallibility of the Scriptures. We can understand a doctrine of repentance. And we can understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are doctrines that we can know and have clear teachings about in the Scriptures. J.C. Ryle went on to say that he believed that this jellyfish Christianity was causing so much trouble. And he says, Mark what I say, if you want to do good in these times, you must throw aside indecision and take up a distinct, sharply cut doctrinal religion. What happens if we don't have a sharply cut doctrinal religion that's distinct? What happens? Well, then Christianity quickly devolves into something that is not Christianity anymore. It quickly devolves into a man-made religion. Something that we want it to be, but that isn't true. So what good is it if it isn't true? What also happens is that we see this trend that when one generation stops affirming doctrinal truths and teaching them clearly, the next generation assumes them. And when you assume doctrinal truths, the next generation will question them and say, I don't know, maybe it's maybe the virgin birth, maybe. Um, and then when one generation questions them, the next generation will deny them. And so in just three generations, Christianity could be lost altogether. And we see this happening all over the world, all over America. And so we want to be a church here that's clear. That says, hey, we believe and teach the Bible whatever God says goes, not what we say. And we want to be clear about what we believe. We don't, we don't want to be wishy-washy. We don't want to be, you know, unclear. Pastors must, according to Paul, Writing to a young protege, Titus, he says, Pastors must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. A pastor has to be able to hold firm to this word and understand it to be trustworthy even when even when I don't understand something, or even when it goes against my cultural thinking. So today, I just want to look at this doctrine of the virgin birth and see how important the doctrine of the virgin birth is and how many other doctrines hinge on the doctrine of the virgin birth. And it's just one example. The, the all of the doctrines are like this. They're all connected. And so to deny one ends up affecting. It has these massive ramifications on all the others. But today we're looking specifically at this doctrine of the virgin birth. It starts out the text this way, Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, that tells us something. That tells us that this is a historical event. These are factual things that he's saying. And then in verse 23, all this took place to fulfill. This is history. It's true. 
It happened. So what happened? It says, verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive. What we see here very clearly is the doctrine of the virgin birth. And it is so clear, not only here, but in Luke as well. It is so clear that to question the virgin birth is to question the God of the Bible. And we're going to see to to deny the virgin birth is actually to deny the gospel. And I'll I'll get there. I'll I'll show us what I mean by that. But I want to say this little side note. Um, if you have questions about things that the Bible teaches, if you have doubts, if you struggle with doubts, I want to say this. God can handle your doubts. He can handle your doubts. The, the important thing is that you go to Him with your doubts and that you settle them. The, the worst thing you can do is just ignore your struggles with your faith, the things that you have a hard time grasping, and say, well, I'm just, yeah, I don't know what I believe about that, but it doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. It matters what you believe. And God can handle it. So go to Him. Talk to Him about it. Talk about it in community. Let, let mature Christians know where you're struggling so that you can work through these things so that you can come to sharp, distinct doctrines. So, the virgin birth. This was the plan from the very beginning. God in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after human beings fall into rebellion, God makes this prophetic statement to Eve. He says, from the seed of the woman is going to come one who would one day crush the serpent's head. And so here we have the fulfillment of that gospel proclamation all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So what does this accomplish? What does the virgin birth accomplish? Well, we're going to unpack this in more depth, but the virgin birth accomplishes the uniting of full humanity and full deity. It accomplishes the uniting of full humanity and full deity. This is what we're going to look at in much more detail. The virgin birth means that Jesus was born with a human mother and God as his father. And first thing that we see looking at that is that God's work of salvation is a supernatural work. This is not something that could be done any other way but through the miraculous. And so if if you can't wrap your mind around the miraculous, powerful workings of God, then not only will the virgin birth be difficult for you, but the rest of the Scriptures as well, because the Scriptures tell time and time again that God does things that, that defy logic, defy what seems possible. So it's a supernatural work, and the entire Bible is a supernatural book, 
It's not a philosophy. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is something higher, better. Now, it is the best way to live. It is the wisest way to live. And so in that sense, it is like a philosophy, but philosophies are man-made, and they're not the same as Christianity. Colossians 2, 8 and 9 warn us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is a supernatural, miraculous religion. It is better than any man-made human philosophy. And the virgin birth shows us that it is miraculous and supernatural. Second thing, the virgin birth means that Jesus was born as a human and yet did not inherit a sin nature. This is known as the doctrine of original sin or inherited sin. Romans chapter 5 explains that sin was passed down to all of humanity through the first man, Adam. It was passed down, and so every person is born with a sin nature. We have a corrupt moral nature from birth, and anyone who's had kids believes it. The fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that the line of descent was partially interrupted. So he has a human mother, but not a human father. And so somehow in this interruption in the line of human descent from Adam, Jesus is born without a sin nature. Luke chapter 1, Luke focuses on this announcement being made to Mary. Matthew's focusing on this announcement in the way that Joseph finds out about it and processes it. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. He is going to be born holy. The word holy means he's sinless, perfect. He does not have a corrupt human sin nature. And so that's the first thing that we we see the virgin birth is tied to Christ being born sinless. Next we see that this virgin birth means that Jesus is fully God. The fact that he has God as his father and Mary as his mother, it doesn't mean that he's 50% God, 50% human. What it means is that he is fully God and fully man. He didn't lay aside one ounce of his divinity in order to become a human being, but remained completely and fully God while becoming completely and fully man. First, I want to look at this, that he is fully God. The Gospel of John begins with this clear affirmation. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to say, and He came and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus' own disciple, Thomas, sometimes referred to as doubting Thomas because he had questions that did Jesus really, did he really rise from the dead? But when he sees that Jesus really did, he, he, he declares this in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. He declares Jesus to be God. In this passage right here, we see it as well. Matthew chapter 1. It says, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus coming to earth is God himself becoming a man to dwell among us. And this was only possible for him to be completely God and completely man, if he was born of a virgin. Jesus himself taught that he was one with God and equal with God. And this is the whole reason that the Pharisees used to crucify him. They said that he was blaspheming, making himself equal with God. They heard him again and again and again. He, he claimed to be able to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. And He did many mighty works, and he said that his words, the words that he spoke, were God's words. He was constantly pointing to himself as divine. The virgin birth also means that he is fully man. Um, Luke shows us this over and over again. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, he says, The child grew and became strong. That's a a human experience. He says in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. He grew up understanding the way that we understand in, in a human way. He grew in wisdom and stature. We also learn in the Gospels things like he, he grew weary on long journeys and he has to sit by a well. And he says, you guys go get something to eat. I'm too tired. I'm going to rest. We know that he falls asleep on a boat because They've been going at it in ministry for a while, and in the middle of a storm, he's sleeping on a boat. We know that he gets hungry at the end of 40 days of fasting. It says he is hungry. We know that he gets thirsty when he's on the cross. He cries out, I thirst. He experienced life physically as a human being on this earth He would have experienced what it's like to wake up with a stiff back. Some of you are still too young. It'll happen. It'll happen. Eventually he does. He experienced not only physically what it is to be a human being, he also experienced what it is emotionally to be a human being. In John 12, 27, before he's arrested, he says, My soul is troubled in Matthew 26, 38, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He experienced what it is to be sorrowful. He, he wept when Lazarus died and his friends were weeping. He leapt for joy at what the Father was doing in his disciples. The Bible says that he prayed with loud cries and tears. He marveled at 
at people who had faith. He experienced the gamut of human emotions. He can identify with us when we're discouraged or fearful or whatever emotions we're feeling. Hebrews says that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with us in our human weakness. But even more significant than that is the fact that as a human being, as a man, Jesus fully obeyed the righteous requirement of God's law. He completely obeyed it. And it's very important that he was a human being. And that brings me to the next important doctrine that's connected to the virgin birth. And that is that because he's fully human, Jesus can be our substitute. This is often referred to as the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. What that means is that Jesus, as a human being, was able to be our representative before the Father. And so, human beings, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. We've all turned and gone our own way. We have all rebelled against our Creator. And the penalty of that rebellion, that sin, is death. Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins shall die. God proclaimed that to Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat of this one tree in the garden, you will surely die. The penalty, the debt for our sin is death. And only a human being can pay that debt. And so Jesus becomes a human being. And he lives a fully righteous life, a completely sinless life. And so when he goes to the cross, he goes in our place as our substitute, as our representative before the Father in order to pay what we owed. So that anyone who believes in him, who puts their trust in him, gets credited with his payment. And not only the payment of his death, but also with his life, with the perfectly righteous life. And so he had to be fully human in order to be our substitute, our representative before the Father. The last doctrine that I want to look at that hinges on this virgin birth is that because he's both God and man, he can be our mediator. And what does that mean? A mediator is someone who comes and reconciles two parties that are at odds. I just said, because of our sin, we were separated from God. A debt we couldn't pay. How could we be reconciled to God? Job felt this. The book of Job in chapter 9, verse 33, he cries out, If only there was someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. The NASB says someone who could put their hand on both of us. What a picture. How could someone mediate between fallen humanity and a God who is so high above us? How could anyone bridge that gap? Only one who could represent both parties could possibly put their hand on us 
and on God and say, let's be reconciled. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. So all of these doctrines that we've just looked at, the, the supernatural nature of our salvation, the sinlessness of Christ, His full deity, His full humanity, substitutionary atonement, Him taking our place and representing us before God, Christ our mediator, all of these hinge on the virgin birth. In other words, to deny the virgin birth is to deny the gospel. And so many doctrines are this way. They're all connected. You can't cut them apart and say, well, there's just this one thing that I'm just not going to believe in the Bible. That's a dangerous game to play. If we want a true and lasting Christianity, then we must take up the distinct, sharply cut doctrines of the Scriptures. Now I want to look at the next part of this message, and that is looking at Joseph and his experience here. Look at verse 19 with me. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Let's just stop there. If we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, it's very helpful. Think about what Joseph was processing here, what he would have been feeling in this situation. He was expecting to be married to Mary. He's betrothed or engaged, right? And it's set. And he's making plans and he's excited. He's going to have a family. And then he gets this news. My fiance is pregnant and it wasn't me. That's pretty devastating, right? That's pretty devastating for him. And so what's he going to be feeling in that? He's going to be feeling shock, confusion, sadness, profound disappointment. Life is not going in the direction I thought it was going. He's going to feel disoriented. What am I supposed to do now? And I think it says, but as he considered these things, I, I think that probably that night before he went to sleep, he was asking God, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is my fiance pregnant? And yet, in the midst of overwhelming disappointment, he decides he's going to handle this as righteously, as justly as he can. It says that he determines to divorce her quietly. That is such a big deal. That is such a righteous move in this situation. Because if he divorces her quietly and doesn't tell people, well, yeah, she got pregnant, it wasn't mine. What is everybody going to think about him? 
See, he decided that even though in his mind she has deeply wronged him, he's going to treat her the best he can. Now, you, if you think about it, you might find yourself in a somewhat similar situation. You probably did not see a pandemic coming in 2020. You probably were not planning to be quarantined or for your job to completely change or your life's plans to completely be altered or the way that you've been accustomed to doing things to be completely turned upside down. And if you're like me, you've experienced the same emotions probably that Joseph experienced. Shock, sadness, disappointment, disoriented. How am I supposed to live life like this? Fear about the future. What does this mean? What does does this mean for our economy? What does this mean for us? Like, how long does this last? All of these things. And maybe you've tried to respond rightly in the midst of it all, but there's a cloud of disappointment that just hovers over you at every moment that's waiting to rain down on you. Let's see what the Lord does for Joseph in this situation. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel sent by God comes with this message, and he starts with Joseph, son of David. Now, I would guess that people didn't typically call him that because David was not Joseph's father. David was a descendant, but a thousand years prior, 28 generations prior, he probably rarely thought of himself as a descendant of King David. And yet here, this angel calls him Joseph, son of David. And then he goes on to say, this child that's going to be born is conceived of the Holy Spirit and is going to save his people from their sins. In other words, the baby you thought was ruining your life is actually the greatest gift from God that you have ever received or that the world has ever received. What did this heavenly messenger do for Joseph? He gave him perspective. Joseph sees only what is right in front of him. My fiance is pregnant. My plans are ruined. My future is up in the air now. And this angel comes and says, You are Joseph, son of David. 
the story that is being that is unfolding right now has been unfolding for millennia. And he says, I'm going to show you a little bit forward in the future too. This baby is going to save his people from their sins. You're caught up in a story much bigger than you, Joseph, that's been unfolding for a long time before you came around. And it will be unfolding for a long time after you're gone. And God is the author of this story. And while you look at what's just in front of you, it looks tragic. But it's going to turn out good in the end. Suddenly, what did look like severe disappointment looks like the best news he's ever gotten. And what does this right perspective do for him? The angel says to him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This is the power of right perspective. It will allow you to live as you ought without fear. When Joseph knew what God was doing, he was able to know what he should be doing. And part of that was living without fear. Now, none of us know what is going to happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less the end of this year or next year. We don't know when we're going to be past this virus. We don't know what's the cumulative effect of all of this is going to have on our economy. We don't, we don't know how, how much progress we're going to make in the area of racial justice. We don't know. We don't know what's coming. But if we can stop being consumed with what's right in front of us in 2020 and zoom out to get a bigger perspective, what do we see? 2,000 years ago, our God came for us. And Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. And the Bible says, if if God gave us His own Son, will He not with Him grant us, give us all things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? We know that this is a story that's been unfolding for millennia. And it's not done. We know how it ends. If you've never read the end of this book, you should. We know that Jesus is coming back. And He is bringing with Him a new heaven. And He is going to make a new earth. And He is going to dwell among His people forever. We do not know what the future holds. But we know who holds the future. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we know what happens in the end. And so... Let me just tie together these two sermons. (laughs) Dogmatic doctrines and the power of a right perspective. If 
we don't have our firm beliefs, if, if we don't hold to the trustworthy word as taught, like Paul told Titus, then we will be blown to and fro with every wind of doctrine like children. There's no way to live with courage in a world that you don't know what you believe. No way. Or there's no way to live with courage in a world that you think that it's impossible to know what to believe. But let me just tell you, friends, we can know what what to believe. It is clear. It is distinct. It is in the Word of God. And so we need to hold firm, clear, sharply cut doctrines. We need to be dogmatic about what we believe, and that will give us courage. And when we look at what's right in front of us, and it makes us feel anxious, we can zoom out and we can say, God, you are writing a story so much bigger than me. I play a tiny part. But this has been unfolding for millennia. And the counsel of the Lord will stand. And He will accomplish all His purposes. And Jesus Christ will come back. And I can fix my hope firmly on the grace that will be given to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, So as believers, we can have the power of a right perspective. We can hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And like Joseph, we can live without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that you have not left us to wonder what you are like or who you are, or what you're doing, but God, that you have shown us. Thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark about how this all ends, that we know that in the end, you will win. And we are heirs of your kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are part of a massive and glorious unfolding story. Lord, thank you that we can trust you. We can trust your word. We can trust the future to you. Lord, help us not to be afraid. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.